Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we begin Luke's second section in his gospel. As Jesus comes to John the Baptist to initiate his ministry and his time serving in the region of Galilee. As word about John's message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins begins spreading through the land, there are a multiplicity of individuals from varied backgrounds that come down to the waters to be baptized. Join us today as we look at how John handles their desire to receive baptism and how he focuses them beyond the external sign of the water to press upon the thoughts and actions that come from their hearts as we seek to answer the question of how a follower of Jesus should live the Christian life. Thanks for listening. I was recently doing a little bit of housework on our kitchen, which means frequent trips to Home Depot because I'm constantly forgetting something. Well, not only have I been forgetting something, but I would buy too much of something as well. So if you had something that you bought from the store that you uh, didn't use or didn't need, or perhaps it was the wrong size, as amateur carpenter hour over here found out, uh, you could go back to the store and you could return it. But you know what they're going to ask for? They're going to ask for one of these. Yeah, you got to remember to bring your receipt. Uh, the, sometimes the receipt is called a uh, proof of purchase. You may be heard that before because how do I know that you got this here? How do I know you're not trying to scam us? You got to show proof. I was thinking about this idea and talking with my son Micah asking him, you know, what are some other things that you need to show proof of? And the first thing out of his mouth, and I love this, was um, that he was listening to his teacher in school. I, I said, okay, were you listening to your teacher in school? And he said, yes, I was. And I said, prove it. And he said, oh, well, you know, uh, I can remember I can remember being like that too when I was uh, when I was a teenager. I remember the first moment I could uh, jump high enough to touch the rim of the basketball hoop. That was a very uh, very good moment in a young man's life. I'll tell you that. But then turned very quickly into a little bit of uh, hyperbole bragging, saying, "Yeah, I could dunk. Oh, I could totally dunk. Yeah." And now that works until your friends say what? Prove it. Uh, you know I need to stretch first. You know, yeah, it's Thursday. I can't jump on Thursdays. You know. That doesn't work with, uh, with Micah in long division. He doesn't need to stretch first to prove if he's been listening. right? I thought about this in terms of how we live out our Christian lives. Right? Oh, I've been going to church 20 years. Yeah, I'm a Christian. What if somebody said to you, prove it? Can, can you prove it? I, I've been coming to church. I've known the Lord. Yeah, of course I'm a Christian. All right, well, prove it. Well, you know I need to stretch first. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we're we're going to be entering into the story of Luke's gospel where John the Baptist comes, and he's going to be answering the crowd. And we're going to try to answer similarly a question that they posed to him, which is this. What do I need to do to live the Christian life? Yeah, I've been a Christian for... 30 years I've been a Christian. My whole life I've been, I've been coming to church. I'm a Christian. Okay. If we were asked to prove it, it really focuses down upon the question of what do I need to do to live the Christian life? There's a verse that Peggy read for us out of James, and it's one that's it's honestly a little difficult. In fact, for the reformer Martin Luther, it was the entire reason he wanted to throw out the book of James. And we read it this morning. Here it was. 
In verse 24 of chapter 2, James writes, You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, as soon as I hear that, I got all kinds of red flags going up. Oh, oh, didn't, didn't we just have an entire message on how we're saved by faith alone? Does anyone remember that? Yeah, that's the key word, alone. Now, what's the, what's the Bible doing here saying that you're not saved by faith alone? Well, we're going to seek to clear that up this morning. And as we do, what we're going to find is there actually is very good continuity between what the Apostle Paul says and what James says, between what Jesus declares and what we'll find John the Baptist saying to the crowds as we continue this morning in Luke chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me now. Uh, As we have just finished the section where Jesus has been previously presented at the temple and then subsequently lost in Jerusalem, we now come to Luke's third chapter, introducing this new new character, the Baptist. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 1, invite you to follow along as we look together. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etyria, of Trachonus, and Lastianus, tetrarch of Albaline. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall be made straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowds asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required. He told them. Verse 14, then some soldiers asked him, And what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly. They were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of which sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork 
is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod had added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. There's more here to chapter 3. And even that which we've covered this morning, we're not going to have time to really cover fully. But there's a few things that I do want to draw your attention to in what we have seen so far. Uh, The first comes as Luke is recording for us uh, who John is. John is this one who comes out of the desert. Uh, We'll see even from Jesus' lips that he's one who comes in the spirit of Elijah, preparing the way for the Messiah, announcing in advance such that the people's hearts would be prepared. There's something unique, though, that Luke records for us. I want you to see this. He says in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 2, that during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. And subsequently he went out. I want you to see this, that the source of our obedience, the source of John's obedience was what? Did you catch it? The word of God. It doesn't say that uh, John felt uh, guilty. It doesn't say that he had a... Uh, job opening, an application to be a prophet? What was the source of his obedience? It was the Word of God. I just don't want to make sure that we don't miss that. That that we see that even here, as this forerunner to the Messiah is going to come, he comes by virtue of God's Word. The next thing I want you to see is something that gets repeated throughout. In verse 7, John says to the crowds... Well, he calls them a brood of vipers. That doesn't sound very Christian-like, right? Um, but why were the crowds coming? Did you, did you see what it was? They're coming to be baptized. Now, I think too often in our culture, we, we kind of look at baptism as something that, that happens semi-regularly. It's not made to be such a big deal about, but that's not the way John took it. Like, here were these people coming to be baptized... And he is questioning them. He's really putting them on the spot. He calls them a brood of vipers and asks, Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Uh, The point of this is simply that, and what we need to take away is that baptism for the Christian is not something that ought to be taken lightly. And it certainly wasn't for John, therefore it certainly shouldn't be for us today. Now, is it hard to get dunked under the water of the river Jordan. Is, is that a hard thing to do? No, nah, that's not hard. You, you could get anybody from the crowd just to come out and go through the motions, go through the ceremony, go through the ritual. But there is something that is hard about it, and, and he, he focuses our attention to it in what he says next in, chapter, in verse 8. Look what he says here. To the crowds come to be baptized, he declares to them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit. Like what? Apples and oranges? Pears and plums and dates? Is that what he means? No, he's, he's using a metaphor here. A, a picture from the agrarian culture in which they all lived. Something that they would understand, which is simply this. Fruit is what is evidenced on the outside. That shows proof of what's on the inside. 
I'm not extremely skilled at this. I could look at a tree and not know what kind of tree it is. There are other people who are better at this, but I'll tell you this. If I look at a tree and I see the fruit, I could tell you exactly what kind of tree it is, right? If I see oranges growing on it, what is it? Orange tree. Apples on it, what is it? Apple tree. No problem, right? Because the fruit is evidence of what's on the inside. That's essentially what John is trying to say here. Um, He goes on a little bit further with this metaphor too, and I want you to see it in verse 9. He says that axe is already at the root of the trees. Why would that be? Well, if you're you're a farmer or if you've um, got an orchard uh, for whatever uh, produce that you're trying to make, and you've got a tree that's just not making any fruit. You just don't see any fruit on it. Well, you might think like I would. Well, maybe that's the wrong kind of tree. How did that tree get planted in here? What do you need to do to the tree that's not producing any fruit? Well, you need to take the chainsaw, right? That's what my version says. Chainsaw is already at the root of the tree. Yeah, because you, you need to cut it down. Get, get rid of that. Mill it up or burn it for firewood, especially on a day like today. Um, because it doesn't have any fruit. Uh, he's carrying and continuing this same metaphor such that the crowd would know. And down through the ages, you and I would know that fruit here is the external evidence of that which is on the inside. You might not be able to identify the tree by the bark. Uh, if you cut it down, you could maybe tell because you're good at and skilled at knowing what, uh, what the uh, wood structure and style. And is it hardwood? Is it soft? And maybe you could tell then. But once you cut down the tree, guess what? too late right it's all done it's all over the tree doesn't have a chance anymore to say no wait 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 i'm actually an apple tree uh you know just wait right you could say look tree you need to you need to prove it you need to prove that you're an apple tree and if the tree says oh i just need to stretch first yeah well what if what if the lumberjack makes it to you first well what if the chainsaw makes it to you first right and then it's too late Right? Because there's nothing external to show that there's been anything done on the inside. So he says that you need to produce fruit. Well, what kind of fruit, John? I want you to see again in verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This is a, it's an important word, repentance. In the Greek word, it's a word, a metanoia. I want you to say that with me. Ready? Metanoia. Metanoia. Uh, it's made of kind of a conjunction of two Greek words. Um, uh, meadow, which means beyond or alongside, and noise, which is of your mind. So you put these two words together, and it literally means to have a change of mind. To change your mind. Like the little girl for the um, children's sermon this morning. What did she do? She met Noyad. That's what she did. Right? Completely changed her mind. Right? Uh, really actually a good illustration of it because in our Bible it doesn't get translated change your mind instead there's another word a really beautiful Christian word repentance well we've heard that word right but what does that word mean (laughs) it means to change your mind and I think that we saw in the children's sermon a really good illustration of that because it was Cindy and Luke's girl right yeah, she, what'd she do? She turned and went the other direction. That's, that's what repentance ought to look like. Repentance is where you were going in one direction with your life, 
But now you turn 180 degrees and you start going the opposite direction. That's this Greek word, metanoia, change of mind. I changed my mind. I'm not thinking like I used to think. I'm not telling myself who I used to be that I am. Right? I'm now going to see myself how God sees me. I'm not going to live the way I used to live. I'm changing directions. I'm spinning around. Repentance. Interestingly enough, the baptizer here doesn't say repent. Did you guys catch that? What does he say? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, the crowd has an answer to this. They're, they're prepared for this kind of a challenge. It's a call back to their ancestry. I, I hear you, John. But guess what? We got Abraham as our father. Abraham, the one that God made his covenant to. He's our great-great-grandpa. John knows that that's their temptation because uh, the crowds and the Jews at this time, they were really good at honoring God with their lips, but guess where their hearts were? Guess where their actions were? They didn't follow in line. There wasn't fruit that showed that they had changed their minds, that they had repented. They would just call upon the, yeah, you know what? I grew up in a family that, that knows God. That must mean I'm good. Did you see his response? He says, don't begin to say we have Abraham as our father. Don't, don't, start, don't give me none of that. In fact, you know what? You know how hard it is for God to get children after Abraham? can make them out of these stones. That's the kind of value that testimony has. You're not going to get to Judgment Day because that's another theme that we're going to see showing up in this passage. You're not going to get to Judgment Day and let the King of Kings come before you and say, why should I let you into heaven? And you say, because, you know, my mom's a Christian. Oh, okay, come on in. Is that going to work? Is that going to fly? No, listen here. You don't get to have anyone else make the decision or call upon your relationship with Christ. It's not because of your family. It's not because of your history. It's not because of your ancestry. John wants it to be crystal clear. It's up to you to produce fruit in keeping with the change that has happened, with the change of your mind. If I don't see any fruit, guess what? Has there been a change? No. No, I don't see apples. That's not an apple tree. I don't see oranges. That's not an orange tree. We're going to get rid of that thing, make room for one that is going to produce fruit. One other thing I'd like you to see before we look at some examples Verse 7, verse 9, verse 17, they all have a common theme. Look with me over in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor. Gather wheat into his barn. So he's using another agricultural metaphor here, right? The concept of wheat and, and the husk of the wheat called chaff. Well, what do you do with the chaff? As you're picking the wheat and using it for what is good, the chaff is burned. It's thrown away. It's done away with. The place where you made all this happen, it was on the threshing floor. And so there is this day that's coming that John is pointing to. There, hear me now. There is a day that is coming when those who belong to God will be separated from those who do not belong to God. From those who have evidence in their life. Actionable evidence of a change that has taken a place, and those who just offer lip service or church attendance, or I got baptized when I was so, you know, whenever. It's going to be one or the other. That day's going to happen. 
He says this day on the threshing floor and the wheat get gathered into his barn. That's where you want to be. You want to be with the farmer. But he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The theme that keeps showing up as the people are coming out to be baptized is, guess what? Judgment Day is close. Judgment Day is coming. And how long ago did this happen? So guess what, church? Judgment Day is even closer. It's even closer. This is the question I want us to look at. Prove it, right? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay, I hear you. Saying that doesn't matter at all. Can you prove it? John gives us three examples I want us to look at. Uh, Example number one comes with the crowd. He says in verse 10, as they turn to him, what should we do? What should we do? And did you see the response in verse 11? The man with two tunics. That's like a coat. Uh, the, The man who's got two coats should share with the one who has none. And who has food should do the same. This is essentially what he's saying. Don't be heartless. Don't be heartless. You, you might think that the, the command here that he's giving is one that has a little bit more to do with self-centeredness. Man, I like my coats. Some of you got a lot of coats in your hanging up, right? A lot of shoes. You should see all my shoes. I got dress shoes. I got work shoes. That's all I actually have. <laughs> These. Yeah. But you know what? There are a lot of people who have a lot less than us. He picks two examples that deal with the essentials of what humans need. The Apostle Paul will say in 1 Timothy, look, if we have food, shelter, food and clothing, I'll be content with that. That's it. Essential. What do you need? You need food, you need clothing. So what do you do to somebody who's unwilling to give to those who don't have food? I'm unwilling to give to those who don't have clothing. That person is heartless. (coughs) Dispassionate. Careless. I don't care. That's what that is. He says, don't be like that. Don't be heartless. Instead, be, a, be the kind of person that when you see somebody in need, oh, it's like, oh, we got to do something. Do you know who those people are in our church? That's the Helping Hearts team. That's what they are. And if that's you, you need to join the Helping Hearts team. Because God has gifted uh, through the Spirit's indwelling, the gift of mercy and compassion. So it just overflows for some of us. But the opposite is not allowed. You're not allowed to be heartless. That's not going to cut it. Uh, Don't be heartless. Instead, he says, give generously. Give to those who are in need. So there's actually a sin that's going on here. It's a sin that Jesus is going to talk about. So the one who uh, um, hates his brother, and that's what this is. The one who hates the one because you're not willing to help for the most basic of human necessities. You're guilty of murder. That's what Jesus says. So that's the sin that's happening here. A hate that's going on such that I don't even care about you. Completely wish that you weren't even on the earth. Look, don't be heartless. Instead, learn to be the kind of person that gives generously. That's the first example. The second one comes with tax collectors. So these guys are the worst, right? Um, Do you all get your W-2s yet? April's coming up, right? You got to pay the piper. Uh, Tax collectors, they come and they say... Verse 12, what should we do? Notice the repetition of the question. What should we do? The answer in verse 13, don't collect any more than you are required to. Don't collect any more than you're required to. So maybe the bill is actually 20 bucks. 
But what are these tax collectors doing? Hey, you owe 25. And then what are they doing with the five? Yep, they're patting their own pockets. They're getting themselves rich. Right? So here, really, the, the command is don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. Don't want for yourself. There's actually a sin that's going on. Do you guys know what that sin is? What, what's the sin that if you owe 20 and I told you you owe 25, what is that? I like, yeah, I like stealing. It's also lying. It's also lying, yeah. Greed is woven up in that as well. So you can see what John is doing. He's really cutting right to the heart of the people. They're coming out to be baptized. A bunch of these wicked tax collectors. Man, is it hard to get dunked out of the water? Is that hard? That's not hard. You know what's hard? Metanoia. You need to produce fruit. You need to change how you live. Stop being selfish. Instead, he gives them this. Right? Be fair. Be fair with people. They owe 20 bucks. Tell them 20 bucks. Be honest. Don't lie. So there's a change now. I want you to see something that you might not find surprising, but I find a little surprising. Uh, Tax collectors worked for Rome. They were looked down upon by the other Jewish people. Many times they were involved in a business practice where wickedness ensues. That was their job. Day after day they went to a place where temptation and wickedness showed up. If I was John the Baptist and these guys were coming to me, I might be tempted to say, find a new job, right? right? They're, they're, they're coming and, and, and they're saying, hey, what should we do? We're tax collectors. We want to be baptized. I say, man, you've got to find a new job. You've got to get out of that racket. That's not what John says. Do you see this? this? This ought to surprise us a little bit. That the call to reform, the call to produce fruit, doesn't necessarily mean that you... Uh, excavate yourself from the place where you're at. Instead, you know what it means? You reform the place that you're at. Your business, your boss, your co-workers, maybe the place where you find yourself earning a paycheck is filled with people who are, yeah, I want nothing to do with God. And temptation might show up. And God doesn't say get a different job. He says you, you come and you change the environment in which you're living in now. You help produce a different kind of tax collector. Now, I imagine what that would have done to all the tax collector buddies. I'll pick on Matt for a minute here. Matt's going to be our tax collector. He's going to be honest, right? <laughs> Cody over here, he, he, he's still trying to get his $5 kickbacks and everything. But he starts, seeing, he starts seeing Matt being honest. How's that going to go? How's that relationship going to go? Hey, man, I, I hear what you're doing. You're kind of setting a bad standard for the rest of us, all right? How about you keep the code, right? There's a certain code amongst us. And look what happens. Look what happens when the people of God begin to live their lives. Rather than check out, find a different job, they begin to live their lives amongst their co-workers. They become a challenge to them. You see what light does when it comes into darkness? It floods the darkness. The darkness wants to push against it. I... Did everybody see that? I know that it's, it's not written in black and white, but it's there. Because he doesn't say, change your jobs. Instead, he says, reform your behavior. Stop being selfish. Stop lying. Don't take more than you are owed. All right, there's one more example here. A third example, as uh, we now look to some soldiers show up. And what's the question they ask? What should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. 
be content with your pay. Uh, essentially, he's saying don't be greedy. Specifically to the soldiers, it was abusing their position of power. Because that's what a soldier could do. They, they could put more upon you than what uh, you could even stand against. Uh, this was something that was actually practiced quite often in the first century. Soldiers, they sometimes weren't paid that much. And so to make false accusations against people would bring them into court. And as a worker with the government, you had to show up for court. Well, whether you were guilty or not, you'd have to pay the fine. And guess where some of that money went? Right back into the pocket of the soldier. So that's what's going on here. This idea of uh, making false accusations was a way for the soldiers to earn more money. But what does John say to them? Did you see it? Verse 14, be content. Be content with your pay. Be content with what you have. I want to point out one more thing that, again, might be surprising to you. The soldiers show up. What must we do? And he doesn't say, oh, y'all need to go to church. That's what you need to do. You, you know what you need to do? You need to go to confession even. Or you need to start making penance. That's what you need to do. You need to start praying. You need to go through a ritual on Sunday morning. There, there are, and I don't think many of them are here this morning, but there are Christians who think that's what needs to be done. Right? You just need to go through a Christian ritual, a Christian rite. Uh, make some really fancy, special kind of sacrifice. Put an extra couple bucks in the offering plate. Say a few more prayers and that'll cover whatever. He doesn't say that. Do you see what he says? He says, you stop living abusing people. Stop being greedy. Reform your behavior. I wonder if, that find, if you find that surprising. Uh, but what so many times we might find answers to uh, these questions, what should I do? There isn't an answer that says go to church more or pray more. The answer is produce fruit according to your repentance. Now, there's something all these have in common. I don't know if you caught it, but I have it up here on the screen. What do all of these commands share? Simply this. Each example centers around how you should treat who? Your neighbor. That's what they do. Jesus' words say this. Teacher, uh, or uh, the rich young ruler comes and asks, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? In the law, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. What is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's it. That sums up the whole thing. The New Testament writers understood this as well. That the ability for you to love your neighbor is evidence. You hear me this morning? The ability for you to love your neighbor with action, not with, not with prayer, I'll pray for you. Not with, a, oh, go be, be well. That doesn't do any good. But with action, where there's a change in your behavior. You know what that does? It proves that you love God. When you and I take faith, stemming from a turning from an old way of living that we would be walking in repentance and we show that with our actions we're producing evidence of faith you say to me i've been a christian and someone says prove it i can i can prove it because my life is no longer the same 
I sometimes wonder if, uh, if I were to run into some of my friends from high school, if they would think if there's been any change in my life since high school. What about you? Are you who you used to be? What if those old buddies of yours were to run into you? Hey, man, let's go have a good time again. Are you, is there any difference? Is there any change? Is there any fruit of repentance? Here's the conclusion I like to draw us to. Number one, he says, uh, I'm sorry, he doesn't say repent. One of my favorite preachers is James McDonald. He preached in 2003 at the university I was attending, and he talked about John the Baptist. He said, John the Baptist had one-word sermons. Some of us would like that, right? Let's just wrap up the sermon. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, John the Baptist would come, and he'd say, repent! Let's pray. (laughs) Right? And that was it. Um, I don't want to correct him here, but that's not actually what John's saying. He's not saying repent. You're all catching this? He's not saying repent. He's saying prove it. That's what he's saying. Because real repentance is manifested in concrete action. That's what James is getting at when he says, you need to know that a person is not justified by faith alone, but also by works. Let's let's make sure we clear that up. Because you don't work your way to salvation. But genuine faith has works that come from it. The problem in James's day is that there were people saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, sure I am. I have faith. I believe in God. James says, look, demons believe in God, man. That's no hard thing. The demons shudder too when they say that. What about you? He says, you show me faith by what you do because that is evidence of real, genuine repentance. So what do we do with this? Paul has a letter to the book of Colossians in chapter 3. I want you to pay close attention to this, and I'll leave this for you in your own time to study on your own. But chapter 3, he says this, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. You guys ready? You find where you're at up on this list, right? Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. And you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. There is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. So did you catch this one? All kinds of things to get rid of. What's that called? What, what, what's the word I had you say? Do you remember metanoia? Say that with me again. Metanoia. That's it. That's a changing. I'm not going to live like I once lived. Now Paul doesn't quit there. Look what he says next. Therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Look at that verb. That's different. Before he was saying, take off the old. Now what's he saying? Put on the new. Clothe yourselves with, here we go, compassion. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Did you hear the echo of the, John the Baptist there? 
What's he say to the crowds? What's he say to the tax collectors? What's he say to the soldiers? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That You know what that means? Hear me now. Some of you really need to hear me on this. That doesn't mean, well, I'll forgive, but I ain't never going to forget. You say it like that, too. That's how my ear hears it. <laughs> I'll forgive, but I ain't never going to. Is that how God treats you? Is God up in heaven saying, oh, I forgive you, but I ain't never going to forget? No, that's not how God forgives you. When he forgives you, and you're like, but God, you remember that thing I did? He's like, what thing? Ah, blood of Jesus Christ has covered it. Good, gone forever. That's how you're supposed to forgive. And over all these things, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether by word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let's wrap this up. He doesn't say repent. He says prove it, right? Because real repentance is seen in action. So this is what I want to leave you with. The Christian life begins with repentance. It begins there. It doesn't begin with coming to church. It doesn't begin with baptism. Anyone can get baptized. Getting dunked under the water, sprinkled with water, any age, I don't care. It matters zero unless there is what? Fruit that accompanies it, showing that something genuinely has happened. And so the Christian life, what do we do? Well, it begins with repentance and is proven true by the fruit of repentance. It's proven true by the fruit of repentance. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? It can't. It can't. John writes, and I have it in your sermon notes, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions in the truth. If you quiet your heart, if you allow God to speak to you today, He'll show you where you need improvement on this. And you could just come and sit through this long sermon of mine and then leave and freeze on your way home. That could be your Sunday. Or, or you could give attention to what the Spirit is telling you. Where do I need metanoia in my life? Where do I need to turn and be done? So here's what I want to do. I want to ask that you'll bow your heads. And I, I'm going to play a song up here on the screen. I'm going to play it quietly. And I want to ask... That you just do business with God. If that means that you need to come up here and, and kneel before him, come up here and kneel. If you need to pray, then pray. There needs to be a change. Some of you need to repent first. Because where does the Christian life begin? It begins with repentance. And it continues with the fruit.